John chapter 4. My, my wife uh, is a real giver. She's a, a, a real giver. She loves to give. She gives of her time generously to people all the time. She, uh, she's very generous, always has been. The day, from the day I met her, she's been very generous with her finances and blessing people. She's always generous with her encouragement. Uh, she's generous with a lot of things. Uh, unfortunately, this week, she was generous with passing a flu on to me as well. Um, generosity has its boundaries. But four days, she's been in bed, and I thought I'd made it. I thought I got through. I'm, I've, I've made it successfully. So she was in bed for four days, and I was looking, trying to look after everything I could. And uh, she woke up Friday morning, and I think in the middle of the night, uh, maybe in like Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them. She maybe in the middle of the night breathed something onto me. And I woke up Friday morning, and she got up and went to work, and I was knocked out. So, uh, so forgive me if my voice is a bit, <coughs> a bit snuffly, if I cough occasionally. Uh, also, please forgive me if my mind trails off and wanders, although now that I'm saying that to you, I feel like you probably think that's normal anyway. My brain just wanders off on all kinds of directions when I get up here and, and stand in front of you. But this morning, we're going to have a look at, at John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Before we get started, Lord, I just pray. <coughs> Father, give me the grace uh, to get through this. Father, give me the ability to communicate. Uh, Father, what you want to communicate this morning. And Lord, open up each of our ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to each of us individually. God, let each of us walk out of here this morning challenged, encouraged, uh, growing in not just our knowledge of you, not just the information we have of you, but growing with a heart connection and passion for you and for what that means for us and for the rest of the world in Jesus' name. Amen. I've never been someone that's titled my messages, but I'm I'm, I'm, I'm being told more and more, you really need to, to have a title and name. I don't know what's in a name. What's actually in a name? Well, everything's in a name, actually. But if I was to title this message this morning, I'd call it, Who Do You Think You're Talking To? Who Do You Think You're Talking To? I came across a story. Now, let me premise this. When preachers get up and share, they share lots of stories, and I like to share a lot of personal stories, things that, because I know when I share a personal story, I'm 100% guaranteed of the facts. You just have to trust me. I'm not lying to you. I tell you the truth when I stand up here. When I use somebody else's story, I like to do a little bit of research just to find out, is that really true or is that just a really, really good story, you know? Uh, Some people have the mentality, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, It's a great philosophy, but I don't necessarily always always agree with it. But anyway, I'm going to share with you a story. Now, I've researched as long as I can to find out if this is actually true, and I'm 50% sure it's an actual true story, and 50% convinced that it's a made-up story, but it illustrates a really, really good point. So I'm going to go with the 50 that I think is true, and we're going to charge on with this story. Anyway, it goes like this. This is apparently an actual transcript of a radio conversation of a US naval ship and and Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland. Apparently it happened in October 1995. It was released by the Chief of Naval Operations on the 10th of the 10th, 1995. And it goes like this. The Americans. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians. We recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans come back. This is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians come back. No, I say again, you divert your course. Now the Americans, as if to say, who do you think you're talking to? This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We're accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That is one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, come back. This is a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) This is a lighthouse. Your call. You make the decision. How many of you have had moments like this in life? Those moments of, do you actually know who you're talking to? Uh, I know anybody with children would have had those moments as the kids grew up where you had to step in. We don't do it all the time, but we've had to step in at times and just remind our children, hey, excuse me, do you know who you're talking to? That's actually your mother you're speaking to there. You don't speak to your mother like that. That's your father you're speaking to there. You don't speak to your father like that. Anyone? Am I the only one that's ever had that said to them or, or ever had to say that? No, we've all been there, all done that. What about talking to your boss? Anyone ever been speaking to their boss? And maybe as you're talking to your boss about something, the emotions just 
overwhelm you and get in front of your logic and before you know it, you're saying something in such a manner and such a way that if you knew, if you could grab yourself and you said and you want to pull the words back because you know, oh my goodness, do I know who I'm talking to? I can't speak to my boss like that. There are consequences when we speak like that in the wrong manner or the wrong fashion. Anyone ever watch that show Undercover Boss? See that show Undercover? I reckon that is a fantastic show. But I'll tell you, I sit there, I'm one of these guys that gets embarrassed for you. Is anyone else like that? If I, see, if I see somebody, say I see somebody getting up on Australian Idol and, and, and they're saying, hi, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I work at McDonald's and I flip burgers but I'm here at Australian Idol and, and I'm going to perform and they start to sing and, and really they sound like they're flipping burgers while they're singing. You know? <laughs> I'm the sort of person that goes bright red. I'm sitting in the lounge room. I don't even know you. I'll never meet you. I'll never have anything to do but I, get, I go red. I get embarrassed. And, and my heart palpitates and I, I get embarrassed for other people. And so when I watch this show, Undercover Boss, man, I go through emotions there too, I'll tell you. Sometimes these people, are, you know, they'll download and they'll start saying, oh, the person who runs this company has got his, his head in the wrong place. And I'm sitting there wanting to reach through the screen and go, do you know who you're talking to? You've got no idea. And I've seen people, we've all seen people who've lost their jobs on that show. Why? Because they, they, they were honest and upfront and told their boss what they thought and... and, and Generally, 99 nine times out of 10, they're fired for the right reasons because the boss realised you don't carry our DNA, you don't care about the business, uh, you're, you're infecting everybody else with negative DNA or whatever. But, but sometimes I watch that show and I want to reach through and I want to just grab them and say, do you know who you're talking to? The insinuation is if we knew who we were talking to, would we talk the way that we're talking? Would we, be, would we say what we're saying? If we knew who we were talking to, would we, communi- would we even communicate with that person? Would we be a bit more aware of the words we were using, the tone that we used and so on? I remember uh, when we were associate pastors, and I don't, say this, uh, I don't say this as a criticism, but when we were associate pastors and we used to go along to, of another denomination, we would go along to pastor's days. <laughs> One of the, the, the memories that sticks with me is I would sit there with these, these ministers and we would have conversation, we'd be talking about the things of God. And they'd be sharing their revelation. This is what God's saying to us. And then they would ask me, so, 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 so are you, what are you? And I would say the words that, that everybody hates to hear. You know, I'm the associate pastor. I'm just, I'm just the associate pastor. In other words, I can't get you into my church to preach. I can't open doors. I'm just the associate pastor. And it was amazing how many people, when they realized who they were talking to, all of a sudden wanted nothing to do with me. All of a sudden, they wouldn't want to talk to me anymore. Me and Jackie would sit at tables by ourselves. And we would, we would talk about how amazing it was that when you didn't know who I was, you were more than happy to converse with me and talk to me. And get to, but as soon as you found out who I am, all of a sudden, you don't want to talk to me. Because I can't, I don't know. Is it because I can't open a door for you? Is it because I'm not going to benefit you? I mean, why? Shouldn't have made a difference. But we've all had those moments where that phrase means something to us. Do you know who you're talking to? There was a woman one day who found herself in a similar situation. And we pick up the story in the book of John, chapter 4. Book of John, chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole story because we know this story. It's, it's, it's quite a popular story. If you're sitting in this place today and you don't know the Bible, I'll guarantee that you have still somewhere along the line come across the story of the woman at the well. Jesus ends up... Uh, in a particular place, he comes across a woman. This is just summarizing it very quickly. Comes across a woman, has an interaction with that woman, and it changes her life. If we pick up the story in verse 3, verse 4, it says this. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. Go back, it says that he was heading from Judea to Galilee. And verse 4 says he had to go through Samaria on the way. Let me give you a little bit of geography. We've got... <coughs> Uh, up here we've got uh, 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 Galilee, we've got Judea, and we've got Samaria, smack bang in between them. Now what most Jewish people would do, because Jewish people didn't associate with Samaritans. They didn't associate with the people of Samaria. So what they would do is, alongside this was the River Jordan. So many of them would cross the River Jordan and go up and then recross the River Jordan to come back on in to Galilee or Judea to totally avoid Samaria. The only people who really went to Samaria who were Jews were if you were going there for trade, because how many of you know they're finance and business? That's a different world. You can, I'll take money off anybody, but we don't deal with you another, you know? It's the mentality of the world. It doesn't matter, who you, doesn't matter how you earn your money, just earn your money, but we'll be, we'll be righteous and holy in the rest of life, but when it comes to finances, well, it's a different world. 
It's how most Jews would go around. So when the Bible says that he needed to go through Samaria, it's not saying he needed to in the sense that that I have a a life-threatening disease and I need medical treatment. It's not need-based as in I have to. It's need-based as in he really, really wanted to go through Samaria. Jesus had a desire within him to want to go to Samaria. So Jesus ended up in this place that he should not have been at because he wanted to be there. He shouldn't have been there, but he wanted to be there. So Jesus ends up in this place. And he gets there in the middle of the day, the Bible says. This is the time of day where nobody should have been there. The temperature's hot. It's really, really warm. What happens is people go to the well early in the morning or late in the evening to collect their water and so on. They don't walk out there in the middle of the day and risk getting heat stroke and sunburn, skin cancers. They went out early in the morning and they did it. But the Bible says that Jesus ends up at this place sitting next to a well in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. And as the story goes on, we see that a woman comes along from Samaria in the middle of the day to fetch water. It says he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. I love the human side of Jesus. He went for a bushwalk, he got tired too. Isn't that good? He's, he can relate to us. God's not some ethereal figure up there that has no ability to relate to human need. And has no ability to relate to human desire. Jesus relates to everything that we have gone through. Everything we find ourselves tempted by. If we read uh, the, the accounts of Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you will see that Jesus has been tempted at all ways that we are. He's been, been stressed. He's been stretched. He's been buffeted. It all happened to him in human reform as well. He knows how to relate to our pain. He knows how to relate to our lives. And he sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Verse 7, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. So Jesus arrives at this plot of ground. He gets there. Nobody's there. When he gets there, he says to the boys, Look, we need some food. Uh, you, you, guys, you guys go shopping. I love this about Jesus. How many of you know that whenever there was, when there was a fishing trip, Jesus was on the boat fishing? Is that right? It's biblical. Uh, please, don't get angry at me for saying this. Jesus loved fishing. He went fishing. It's in the Bible. It's the word of God. Don't criticize me. When it came time to shopping, what did Jesus do? Sent the disciples. He wasn't going to go shopping. So please, wives, a little bit of slack here for your husbands. If we don't like shopping, it's because we're made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. So Jesus sits down and he says to his disciples, the shopping's got to be, I'm not going shopping. You guys go shopping. Over here, Peter. Here's, here's the visa card, Peter. Here's the pin number. Make sure you don't tell Judas. I'll explain later about that. And he sends them off into IGA, Israeli Grocery Association. Go and get some food, bring it back. And while they're in town, this amazing interaction takes place. This woman comes out in the middle of the day to draw some water. (laughs) Jesus broke all the rules by simply interacting with her. You know, the amazing thing about a lot of the stories of the Bible, I always say this to my kids. When something happens, an event takes place, I always like to go back to the first cause. What, what has to not happen in order for us to not be here right now? When they fight and argue, what has to not happen in order for us to not be at this place where it's looking like everyone's going to get grounded till the age of 45? <laughs> and usually it'll come back to, well, I didn't have to shoulder him when I walked past him in the bathroom. Exactly! Take that one little thing out and we don't end up over here. <laughs> Take one little thing out of this story and we don't have the story. What is it? Jesus spoke to her. Jesus spoke to this woman. Jesus broke all protocols of the day in order to engage in a conversation or a relationship with this woman. Jews to Samaritans, he broke it down. Jews and Samaritans had no dealings. This woman knew that. She said, you're asking me for a drink of water. What are you, a Jewish man, asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water for? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As a matter of fact, Jews had a term they used for Samaritans. They called them dogs. Imagine that. Imagine being referred to as a dog. It's a bit of a derogatory statement in a world that is so livid with political correctness now. Jesus would have got a bit of a clip over the ear for that one. The Jewish people wouldn't, would have offended many people with that terminology. You're a dog. Remember the story about the Samaritan woman and the crumbs fell from the table. 
Remember the story? And she's asking Jesus. Jesus goes, no, no, the bread's here for the, for the kids and the crumbs fall. She goes, but even dogs get to eat the crumbs. And Jesus says, wow, that's amazing flesh. That's great flesh. They're referred to as dogs, Jews and Samaritans. They didn't mix. They didn't like each other. She says, who are you, a Jew, talking to a Samaritan? Then she says, who are you, a woman, talking to a man? He broke down those protocols. Women were second-rate citizens. Not everywhere. Let's not blanket statement that. There were some quite successful women uh, in the Word of God. But we go back into that society. Women didn't have the same standing in society as men did. So here he is, a Jewish man, wanting to engage in conversation with a Samaritan woman. And we go one step further than that. He says to her, give me a drink. Here he is sitting there on the edge of the well. He has no water jug, no cup, no pot, no nothing to draw water from. She walks up, the Bible says, with her water jug. And Jesus says, draw water and let me put my lips on that very jug that you put your lips on. That is totally unclean. That is totally unheard of. As a Jew, you would never put your lips on something that a Samaritan put their lips on. It's culturally unclean. It's dirty. It's wrong. So just in the very first instant, the minute he talks to this woman, he breaks all kinds of religious and social rules in order to engage with this woman. He tears down, well, last week we talked about walls, those religious walls that we build around ourselves in order to make ourselves feel safe. And straight away, Jesus walked straight into this situation and he started booting down walls straight away. Racial walls, sexist walls, religious walls, with one statement, give me a drink. But there was more going on in this woman's world than simply Jesus asking her for a drink of water. As the story goes on, we learn a few things about this woman. We learn that she'd also broken a few rules herself. She'd done a few things wrong. And a few people knew about it. A few people knew about it. As the story goes on, Jesus eventually in conversation says to her, go and get your husband. And she says, I'm not, I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, you're dead right. Good answer. Bingo. You've had five husbands. And the fellow you're with right now is not even your husband. You're on man number six. You're on man number six. So this woman has broken a few rules as well. Within the culture of that day, here's something we know for sure. A woman could not divorce a man. Only a man had the power to divorce a woman. I wonder, when I think about this woman, you see, sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we read it one-dimensionally. We just read the words. I think we've got to, in order to really understand the words, we've got to engage with what is the point, what's the message being communicated, and also what is the emotion being communicated to. This woman was not just a figure, a historical figure, or a couple of words on a plate. This is a real woman, a real person. She's been in five relationships. How do you think she would have felt... I don't know what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us about those relationships. We can have insinuations, but there's no clear picture as to how she ended up where she ended up. What we do know is five times, five times a man said, I'll marry you. And five times that man said, get out of my life. Five times. I'll marry you. I'll spend the rest of my life with you, whatever. And five times that man found a reason, valid or invalid, I don't know. And I don't want to insinuate. The Bible doesn't give us anything to really go by. Perhaps, possibly, she was a bit flirtatious, maybe. Maybe the man she's with now who's not her husband, maybe that gives us a little bit of a glimpse, a window, possibly, into what may have gone wrong the other five times. Maybe she was playing around. But that, again, is an insinuation. What I do know is if I'm a human being, man or woman, and I've entered into that kind of relationship, got to that point of trust and love with another human being, to the point where I'll commit my life in marriage to them. And five times, it's ended in rejection. I'm hurt. I'm hurting. And not only is she rejected by those five men, but the reason she's getting water in the middle of the day is because everybody in the community knows who she is. So she's now isolated. She's unclean amongst the unclean. What a bad life. What a struggle she must have had on the inside. I wonder what her self-image was like. I reckon it would have been pretty poor. He was a woman that was used to isolation. A woman that is used to rejection. Matter of fact, I think 
When Jesus says to her, get me a drink, and she says, who are you? A Jewish man, speaking to me, a Samaritan woman. You know what I think she was saying? Beyond the surface, she's saying, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who you're speaking to here? I'm five times divorced. I've been rejected by men. I've got problems. I'm broken. I've got issues. I'm imperfect. I don't look the part. Even the unclean Samaritans, who you, you, you think the Samaritans are unclean, even the unclean Samaritans don't want anything to do with me. Why do you think I'm standing here in the middle of the day? Because I can't come and get water with them. I'm not allowed to. I'm too ashamed. I'm too embarrassed. This is the woman that Jesus is speaking to. This is the state of her heart. This is who he's engaging with in this particular situation. She is used to rejection. She's used to brokenness and dysfunction. Her shortcomings and failures had isolated her from a community and in turn, she was a woman that would have felt she had no significance, no value, no purpose. Rejection had become an expectation for her. In other words, Jewish man, do you know who you're speaking to? If you did, you wouldn't be speaking to me. Nobody would speak to me. Look at me. I'm a mess. Self-made, not self-made, it's irrelevant. I am where I am right now. Some of us get ourselves into situations in life. And you know what? Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter how you got there, but you're there. It doesn't matter how you ended up in the place you are. The fact is you're there right now. And sometimes we spend all kinds of time and energy trying to work out how, you know, or blaming. It wasn't my fault. It was somebody else. It was this. It was that. We can spend our whole life doing that, but it doesn't change the reality of this is who I am right now and this is where I find myself and this is what my life is like. And that's the situation this woman found herself in. Here she was. Verse 9 and 10 says, The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she said to Jesus, You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift that God has for you, and who you were speaking to. Do you know who you're talking to? If you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me. And here's the thing. I'd give you living water. <laughs> I can imagine this woman who's had five men and is onto a sixth. And he's this Jewish man. What is he doing out there? She wouldn't have expected to meet Jesus there. You don't expect to meet a man out at the well in the middle of the day. It's, an, it's a place of isolation. Nobody's hanging out in a well in the middle of the day. How, how, how many of you know Jesus hangs out in the places where religious people shouldn't? He's always done it. It's, it's amazing. You read the word of God and, and Jesus always tends to pop up in places where we think he shouldn't be. If Jesus, as a matter of fact, I think if Jesus, I'm going to do a, a preach on this one day, if Jesus, what, if Jesus was our pastor, I, honestly, if Jesus was my pastor, he'd freak me out. He would. I, I don't know. If in the state I am right now, I could even sit in his congregation. He would wig me out. He loves these weird people. He's, 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 he's not so concerned with, 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 you know, you've got to, if you want to come along, there's a bit of hair sticking up there, Ruth. You need to cut that because it's just, it's not perfectly rounded. It's not perfectly rounded. It's just, and every now and then it's, a, you know. Don't you? You can't drink plastic. You need to drink from a glass bottle from here and you need to have the church name on the side too, by the way. I feel like you're promoting pump and that's not what we're here for. <laughs> you know? I, I just reckon, I reckon that Jesus would freak us out if he was our pastor. And, that's a, and I say that with, 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 with great humility, thinking that, that alone, that thought alone tells me, God, there's so much more of you for me to discover. You're so much bigger than I thought you were. You're so much more encompassing. Your grace is so much greater than I comprehend and think that it is. But that's not for today. Let's get back to the woman at the well. When she says to him, when Jesus comes to her and says, can I have a drink? I wonder if she's at all thinking, you know what, here we go again. Five men. What is it about me and men? What is it about men? They just want things from me all the time. Here's this Jesus coming and the first thing is, I want something. From... How many of us feel that way with God? God just wants from you. He just wants to take from you. God comes and finds you so he can take from you. He just wants to, I want to take away from you. But we, we usually associate the taking with the good things. You know, I want to take all your money. 
God, now that you come to Christ, I want to take your money. I want to take up your Sundays. Take, I want to take time away from you on Wednesday night with a Bible study. I want to take away, I want to take, I want to take, I want to take. Jesus says that if you actually understood who it was speaking to you, you would ask me to give to you. And I would give something to you far greater than you'll ever be able to give to me. The water you're going to give to me, I'll scull it down. And in 30 seconds, I'm dry breathing out sand again. You're going to have to pop it down. Give me another one. Pop it down. I'm going to give you something that once you've got it, it'll change your life forever. It'll change your life forever. You see, Jesus comes to give. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy. He wants to take away from you. God says, I came to give you life, to give you something. Who loves receiving things? Who loves to receive things? Jesus wants to give you things. He wants to give you stuff. He's not here to take everything away from you. And if he is taking it from you, it's only because it's standing in the way of you experiencing life. That's the only reason he'll take something away from you. If it's stopping you from experiencing life the way that he gives life. That's all. He loves you. And Jesus flips it around. This woman's there going, oh, here we go again. Another man wants to take from me. Another man. And Jesus says, you know what? No. Other men might have done that to you. They might have taken from you, chewed you up and spat you out. The world may have mistreated you. The world may have abused you. The world may have put you down. The world may have said, you're not good enough. You're not significant. You've got no value. You've got no worth. But I want to come and give you that. I want to give you significance. I want to give you value. I want to give you worth. And guess what? I want to give it to you right now in the very place where you are. I'm not waiting for you to clean yourself up. I'm not waiting for you to get better. I'm not even waiting for you to make a decision to stop sinning. I'll get involved right now where you are and I'll give you life right now. Everyone's heard the saying, we want to clean the fish before we caught it. I have never caught a fish without scales. And gut. I've had to catch them first. Then I scale them and then I clean them and all that sort of, you know. That's what happens with fishing. So often we have this picture that, that uh, and, and, and if we don't have it, we can portray it. We've got to be careful not to portray it. That you've got to be clean and tidy. That the kind of people Jesus comes to are those that are, you know, you've got to be ready. What does ready mean? I'll tell you what ready means. Oh, I won't go there right now. Needless to say this, Jesus came to awkward people. Jesus came to the wrong people in the wrong places at the wrong time. He specialises in it. That's how he does it. And he changes people's lives from the inside out. Gets a hold of their heart. And Jesus says to this woman, hey, I didn't come to take away from you like all the other men. I didn't come to take from you like the rest of the world has. I've actually come to give you something. And what I want to give you is life transforming. What I want to give you is healing. What I want to give you is significant. What I want to give you will give you value and worth and purpose. That's why I didn't need to be here today. But I wanted to be here today. You know, it's a really empowering thought to realise that God doesn't need you. You know that? God doesn't need you. He wants you. He wants you. How shallow would my marriage be with Jackie if I only married her because she needs me? How shallow would that be? Every day waking up looking at this woman going, she needs me. In other words, I'm just here to serve a purpose. I'm just here to meet something in her, to fulfil something in her. She doesn't need me. She wants me. (laughs) (laughs) Makes me feel kind of special. (laughs) And you know what? God doesn't need you. He wants you. Jesus didn't need to go to Samaria. He wanted to go to Samaria. He didn't need to communicate with this woman. He didn't need to get involved with this woman. He wanted to get involved with this woman. It's, 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 it's not like a Pokemon game. You know, is that the thing at the moment where there, people are running around town? With the, I don't get it. I just... I don't get it. We're driving, we're, we're driving down, 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 up, up, 
to the football on Monday night and I've got, I've got the kids in the car going, oh, yeah, they're chasing. And there's kids walking on sidewalks and the boys are going, oh, yeah, he's getting Pokemon. He's getting so like, what? They're walking along with their phones apart, you know? It's like, I don't know how it works, but I know in a lot of those games, when I was a kid, I used to play the video games, and, and when you would, you would, there would be like a, a thing, you had to get like an apple or something, and every time you got the apple, your power bar, you ever play those games and the power bar goes up, and the more you get things, the stronger you are. You know, sometimes I think we have that image of God. The more people God gets, the stronger he gets. God doesn't get any stronger. God doesn't need you to make him feel significant. God doesn't need me to give him strength. The Bible doesn't say that I shall give my God strength. It says my God gives it to me. The Bible doesn't indicate I give God significance. God doesn't wake up in the morning and go, oh, there's a church there. I feel like today's going to be worth it. I've got my church down there, so I've got something to do at least. You know, Sunday morning. I love Sunday mornings because they tell me how good I am and by the end of Saturday night I'm feeling pretty depleted. It's Sunday morning, nature. Oh, I'll make it through another six and a half days now. God's not like that. He doesn't need us. He wants us. Isn't that beautiful? God wants you. Nobody else might want you, but God does. Nobody else might see the value in you, but God does. Nobody else might see the significance in you, but God does. God does. It's beautiful. You might not even see the significance, the value, and the worth in yourself, but let me tell you, God does. Isn't that beautiful? God does. And this woman, she said, who do you think you're talking to to Jesus? And here's the thing. Romans 8, 38, 39. says this. It says, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. There's nothing in your physical presence that will separate you from the love of God. There's nothing spiritually that can separate you from the love of God. Neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. It's pretty broad. It's pretty broad. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty wild. There's nothing you can do, say, think, involve yourself in. You can't be bad enough and you can't be good enough to separate yourself from God's kind of love. It's there for all of us all the time. No matter what, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're currently doing, God's grace is there for you. God's grace is there for you. And it's the grace of God that's the power to change. You know, I remember... Uh, I would have been 16 years of age. I, 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 I ended up in Ballina at 15 because I couldn't live with my mother or my father. I loved them both, but I couldn't live with either of them. I tried different times with different ones and, when, and, and it was quite a dysfunctional uh, upbringing. And I couldn't handle it. I got to the point where I, I, my mother was a gypsy floating all around the country and I got sick of the transient lifestyle. And grade seven in high school, I went to seven different high schools uh, right up and down the east coast of New South Wales inland all, all over the state. Seven schools. By the end of grade seven, I was an academic mess and a social mess. I, I quit. I lost the ability to try to communicate with people because I thought, what's the point in making friends here? In two weeks' time, Mum, you're going to drag me somewhere. So I would end up going to school and isolating myself and, 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 and stop trying to build relationships. I went from being a, an A student, topping my class in everything, could have done anything I wanted to do with my brain, to by the end of year seven, failing just about every exam and test I ever did. To the, I, I failed my HSC so low, they won't tell me the score. See how bad it was. Not stupid, I had some disruptions on the way and never quite recovered. I didn't have Jesus in my life, I hadn't found God up to that point. But I remember at 16 years of age, I, 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 at 15 I left home, I, I, I drove up the Balna trains and buses and I rang up an uncle and auntie and said, I can't live with anyone, can I live with you? And they said, yes. Yeah. So I ended up in Balna. 
I went down to Sydney about eight months later. Uh, to my dad was, had moved in to St Mary's with his, his parents. And I said, Dad, I'll come down and see you for a week. And, but on the way back, I, th- I said, I'm not buying a bus ticket, Dad. Can you drive me back to Balma? And he went, OK, no. I said, drive me back to Balma. And he's never left since. My dad still lives in Balma. Drove me up. After he'd been here for a while, he got a caravan to stay. And he got a caravan and said, I'll just stay here overnight. And he was there for about two years. Um, so anyway, one day I, I said to him, oh, I'm going to move back in with you. So I moved back in with my dad and was there for a few months. It was Father's Day. I went to school and I, I, we, we didn't celebrate a lot in my family. Birthdays, Christmases, Mother's Days, Father's Days, nothing. But I was at school and this kid said to me, you know, it's Father's Day today. And I said, no, I actually don't have a clue. Anyway, he had this pen. He probably, probably came free with a packet of cigarettes or something. I don't know. But anyway, he said, it's a really nice pen. I'll sell it for two bucks. I had two dollars, so I went, no worries. I gave him two bucks, got the pen. But I'll take this home and give it to my dad for a Father's Day present. I walked into the caravan we were living. My dad was there. I said, oh, uh, Dad, by the way, I got you something. Here you go, happy Father's Day. Handed him a pen, turned around, went over to the bench. I think I might have got a drink of water, turned around, and my dad was gone. Totally gone, couldn't see him. I walked out down the stairs of the caravan over in the corner of the annex, and there's my dad curled up in the fetal position, sobbing like a baby. My dad was a hero to me as a kid. He was a big man, he was a solid man, he wasn't a wimp. And here he is, curled up in the fetal position, sobbing like a baby, because I gave him a pen. A pen. And I thought, what a fantastic picture of the power of grace. That's what grace does. When grace comes into our world, it breaks down the hardest of exteriors. It gets rid of all the reasons, it gets rid of all the excuses, and it gets to the heart. Grace goes after the heart of a person. Because grace knows that's where change takes place. My dad just sat there and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. How could something so tiny have such an incredible impact? I don't really know. I don't get it. But that's the power of grace. That's the power of grace. To transform, to change, to heal, to bring wholeness. That's what grace does. Jesus is there to offer this woman grace. She still doesn't get it. She still doesn't get it. Jesus goes in the course of this conversation from being simply a Jewish man to then being sir, which is a respectful terminology in the day. Then he goes from being sir to being a prophet. Then he goes from being a prophet to being her saviour. How did all this take place? What was a significant moment? What was the thing? What was the tipping point that caused this woman who walked out of the city to never return? A different woman walked back into that city. Verse 16 and 17 says this. When Jesus says to her, get your husband, she says, I don't have one. Jesus, I might have to start wearing my glasses. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. You're right. You don't have a husband. If you've had five husbands, you aren't even married to the man you're living with. Now, here's what Jesus was saying to her. He was saying, I know exactly who I'm talking to. I know exactly who I'm talking to. Not just what you think, not just what you do, not just what you believe, but who you really are. I know I'm talking to a broken, hurt woman. I know that I'm talking to a woman who doesn't behave the way I think she should. I know I'm talking to a woman who doesn't believe the same things I believe. She turns around and goes to Jesus, well, if you're a prophet, tell me, where should we worship? Our, you Jews worship God on, in Jerusalem and we worship God on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus doesn't even care about it. He doesn't care about the religious conversation. He doesn't care. He says, we don't agree theologically, I don't care. We don't believe the same things, I don't care. You don't behave like I think you should, I don't care. I love you anyway. I love you anyway. It was Jesus' unconditional grace that changed this woman. When she runs back into the city, here's what she says. Now keep in mind, here's a woman that goes out of the city to do her shopping her water away from people. She can't be with people anymore. 
she has an encounter with Christ, what's the first thing she does? The Bible says she just drops her water jug. That would not have been an easy thing to do. She just left that which cost her. Left her water jug and the Bible says she ran back into the city and she said to the rest of the people in the town, come and see a man who told me everything about myself. You know what she's really saying to that town? She ran back in and said, you know all the stuff about me, the stuff that you guys isolate me from, the reason why you hate me, the reason why you don't accept me, the reason why you reject me, the reason why you isolate me, you know all that stuff. Come meet a man who knows the same stuff as you, but he accepted me. Come and meet him. That's what she's saying to him. She runs back in and goes, come and meet a man who told me everything about myself. Come meet a man who knows my sin but wants me with him anyway. Come meet a man who knows my dysfunction, but wants me to be with him anyway. Come meet a man who knows my disgrace, but he wants me to be with him anyway. Come and meet this man. It was the unconditional grace of Christ that changed her life. It was the unconditional love of God. It was the fact that Jesus was able to turn around and say to her, you know what, you're saying to me, do I know who I'm talking to? And by the end of the conversation, Jesus said to her, I know exactly who I'm talking to. Matter of fact, I know who I'm talking to better than you do. But I still want to talk to you anyway. I still want to be with you anyway. I still want to love you anyway. With his unconditional grace. Hey, all of you in town, even though you all rejected me because you knew who I was, come and see a man who knew who I was, but he accepted me anyway. Come and see this man. Let's get you there. Jump on the keyboard for me, Christy. You know, we find it very hard to accept grace. If we're honest with ourselves, we find it hard to accept grace. It's hard to get our heads around. Really, really hard. Because it's beyond natural human thinking, the kind of grace that God offers to us. We can only get a hold of it by revelation. We need God to open our heart and to show us it. Because we can't think our way into understanding how God's grace operates. We really need God to move upon us. We need God to show us. You ever seen people fighting over a bill? You know, you go out for dinner and the bill comes out. You ever been in those situations? The bill comes out and everybody wants to pay. No, no, I'll get it. No, no, I'll get it. No, I'll get it. If you're smart, you go up and you pay it before the end of the meeting and then nobody can argue with you then because it's already been taken care of, you know. Sometimes people fight over paying the bill Sometimes they fight over it because they're generous and they want to pay the bill and bless you. Do you know what? If we're honest, some people fight over paying the bill because we don't know how to receive. We don't know how to receive. I'm embarrassed if you pay for it. I've got to pay my own way here and I'll be embarrassed if you pick up the bill. I struggle with it. If you want to go out for dinner, take me. I'm not embarrassed. (laughs) It's not true. I am. But grace is such an amazing thing that there's literally nothing we can do to get it. The most powerful encounters you'll find in the Word of God, the most powerful things you'll find in the Bible are moments of grace. Moments where grace comes into a situation that looks impossible and grace changes it. When grace comes into the life of a human being and it's grace is, you know, grace is the power of God. Paul the Apostle said, I am who I am by the grace of God. In other words, I was this wicked sinner. I was killing Christians, literally, historically, physically, taking them and killing them, murdering women, children, didn't care what it was. If you said that you agreed with Jesus, I would kill you. I would chuck him into lions. I would lead them off to the slaughter. And grace got a hold of him and changed him. You know what? He was that same dirty, rotten, disgusting sinner the moment grace entered his life. What I love about this situation here, at no point did Jesus say to her, you with the, you know, the guy you're with now, he's your sixth. You better stop. That's enough. Surely that is enough. Learn your lesson. Six is enough. I draw a line at six. I know seven's the number of completion, but I don't want you to go there. Six is enough. No more. Don't do it again. Let's make a commitment. You and me, let's, let's, let's agree. Let's sign on the dotted line now. And then I'm going to give you grace. Once you decide not to do it anymore, then I'm going to... You find me anywhere in the Bible where Jesus dealt with people like that. I find Jesus giving grace to people. And the disciples going, well, hang on, we can't have this, we can't have that. 
religious people are the ones going, ah, oh, but you can't be mixing with that. They're a sinner, they're this, they're that, they're a prostitute. And Jesus goes, ah. I give prostitutes grace. I give sinners grace. It's the sick that need a doctor, not the righteous. You think you're well, you think you got it together, fine. Don't worry about you, but I'm looking for the sick. People who admit they've got a problem. I'm looking for the broken. I'm looking for those people because I'll pour my grace out upon you. And I'm not making a deal with you here going, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make a deal. I'll give you grace if you can promise me that you're not going to do it again. We operate like that, don't we? If we're honest, we operate like that. We don't mean to, but that's kind of how we do love and grace. It's quite conditional with strings attached. It's not the way that Jesus does it. And it's sad. If we want to be the people of God, if we want to reflect the character and the nature of the Father, we've got to get a grip of grace. Firstly, we've got to learn to receive it for ourselves. Because if we cannot receive it, we cannot give it. You cannot give somebody that which you do not have. If your relationship with God is not built on grace, then you have nothing to give people. I was finished with this. I was ministering in New Zealand. Uh, in Auckland probably 10 15 years ago and I was speaking to a bunch of people more, well more mature than me these were, these were people that were uh, working in, in amongst the Taliban in Afghanistan and, and they're telling me stories of these hot spots around the world where they were working and, and, and could have been killed for what they were doing. And they're telling me stories of sitting on a corner and, and, and seeing a car coming and radioing into a secret house church, meeting in the basement of a place and going, they're coming. And everybody having to scatter and, and all, the, all the machinations that went with trying to fellowship and gather together in places like Afghanistan and Somalia. And, all, and, and I've got these, these people here and I'm asked to come over and to share and I'm just in awe of what these guys are doing for God and, and, and what they're seeing and so on. But I remember at the end of one session, uh, a, a, a man said to me, can I, can, I, can I talk to you? I just need to talk privately with, with you for a second. And I okayed it with their leadership. Is that okay for it? And they said, yep. So we went for a walk around the block and this guy begins to tell me about his life and he's brought up in the church and you know, loves God and everything like that. <laughs> and he goes, but here's the deal. He said, I've got a struggle and I can't talk to anyone about it because I just don't know how they'll treat me or what they'll think of me if I'm honest. In other words, if they really know who they're talking to. And I said, well, what's your struggle, mate? Trust me, trust me, nothing freaks me out. Nothing freaks me out. I've heard things that make the curled toes curl. He said this to me. He said, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. Here I am. He said, I'm ministering for God. I'm, 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 God's moving through me. I'm, 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 I'm praying for people and sharing. And, and he said, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. He said, I haven't done anything with that struggle. I haven't engaged in any particular, any activity, but I'm struggling with this problem. And he began to unpack his heart. And as he did, he began to cry. I had nothing, really, to say to him about that. I shared a few thoughts, but that's personal between me and him. But it just reinforced to me again the difference grace makes that he would feel comfortable in that environment with me to go, this is who I really am. Do you really know who you're talking to? Yeah, I know who you're talking to. And nothing you can say is going to make me not want to talk to you. Nothing you can say is going to make me turn my back on you. But at the same time, I came away with a bit of a heart cry going, God, is this what the church is becoming? Are we becoming a place where people can't be honest? Are we becoming a place where the woman at the well would walk into I would never have the guts to say I've been through five divorces and the guy I'm with right now I'm not married to. Would she feel comfortable here? Would the woman caught in adultery feel comfortable here? Would the AIDS sufferer feel comfortable here? Would the, 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 the drug addict feel comfortable here? Would these people feel comfortable? Because the, the thing I can't escape is they feel comfortable with Jesus. And, and you can argue me blue, black and blue in the face. I will disagree with you because I have the same Bible you do. And I'll just send you back to read it. He, they felt comfortable with him. And when people come in to church and they feel like they can't be honest, they feel like they can't be true to who they are, they can't bear their soul, 
I want to say to them, you know what? Let me apologize for that because what you're feeling, that's not God. That's us. That's, that's me. That's people. And if I make you feel that way, I apologize. But please, please, please understand that's not Jesus. I don't care what you're doing, what you're going through. I don't even care about how you think about what you're doing right now, whether you agree with God yet or you don't. Maybe you're going through stuff right now. Maybe you're involved in stuff and you know it's wrong, but you don't agree with God yet. You know what? Jesus didn't wait till she agreed with him to give her grace. Jesus didn't wait for the woman caught in adultery to sign on the dotted line and and, and say, I'll never do this. Jesus didn't wait for tax gatherers to go, I'll never collect taxes and rip people off again. He doesn't wait for lies to go, I won't lie again. Jesus just says, all I want is to give you my grace. I just want you to accept my grace and let grace be the power that changes you from the inside out amen I want to just finish up now but I want to pray for people this morning I I just have this overwhelming sense I know that God wants to do something wonderful I know he does I know that God wants to express himself. He wants to show himself to people. He wants to to give people an expression of his character that maybe, just maybe, just maybe, just maybe, they're not getting to see everywhere. And maybe, just maybe, that's why we're here. I don't think God's called us just to be another church. We just want another church. We don't need another church. There's plenty of churches. Let's, let's all go to another church and give them finance so they've got more money and they can. It's not. But I really believe in my heart that God wants to do something a bit different. I look around the room here and I just see a bunch of messed up people. I mean that respectfully, by the way. There's a difference between messed up and screwed up. Okay? None of us are perfect. None of us. We're all doing the best we can. And the more we press into and embrace the grace of God, guess what? The better we become. Not only better will we become in terms of our connection with God, but we'll become more effective in what we do in the community and around us. Please don't feel like I'm putting you down when I say that. I don't mean to, I'm not putting anyone down. What I'm saying is none of us are good enough to make it on our own. We all need the grace of God. So we want to pray this morning with people. We've been talking about grace for a couple of weeks now. Maybe you need a touch of grace upon your life. Maybe, maybe you just need the faith to believe that grace exists for you. Sometimes we can believe it for other people, but believing this stuff for ourselves is a whole new level. And maybe you just need God to touch you and to show you that, you know what, this is for you. I'm not talking to you about somebody else. God's not talking to you about something. He's talking to you about you. We stand by grace and grace alone. So we're gonna, I'm going to pray for you now. and We've got morning tea up the back there. Uh, looks like good morning to you as usual it always is here we always go top shelf here at Arise but if you'd like prayer we'd love to pray with you this morning please don't miss the opportunity I believe God wants to touch people Father I want to thank you Lord for your unending unfathomable grace I thank you that grace is not a topic that we talk about grace is not a, a 